Hi there. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to Dharma Punks, New York. This is uh, speaking to you from Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Real chill has befallen this region. So we're all wrapped up and ready to talk as a way to keeping ourselves warm. Before we jump right in, uh, just noting that next Tuesday, the Dharma Punks gathering will be in person at Grand Street Healing, 7 o'clock on Tuesday, December 5th. Feel like dropping by, please do. Very near the L train and Domino Park. If you're not in the New York City region, we'll still do our podcast. Please tune in. I am a Buddhist pastor and counselor. Everything I've done uh, in that role for the last 20 years has been entirely by donation. I don't charge for the teaching or the counseling. And my work is very much provided just uh, by listener-sponsored means. And the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC. And the PayPal is on the dharmapunksnyc.com website, as is the Patreon. So thanks for that. And tonight, self-inflicted suffering. So over the years, I've noted a compulsion in many of the individuals I work with to tell me about behaviors that seem geared to bring about painful outcomes, emotional pain. Now, I'd like to be clear what I mean by this. I'm not talking about the kind of self-harming behaviors that involves purposely hurting one's physical body, leaving scars. Those are known as NSSI or non-suicidal self-injury. We're not talking about that. Self-inflicted suffering are fixated behaviors that are often stressful, that bring about outcomes that are pretty predictable feelings of shame, loneliness, and hopelessness. So some people might note that addictions to alcohol, drugs, and shopping, or whatever, produce long-term shame. But people engage in addictions specifically to numb pain or numb unpleasant emotions, whereas self-inflicted suffering are behaviors or actions that are pretty unpleasant throughout. There's no illusion that one's sadness or loneliness will be in any way alleviated. A few examples, because examples help clarify what we're talking about. So while an alcoholic will drink to numb the pain after a a romantic breakup, someone who has a predilection to self-inflicted suffering will instead spend hours stalking their exes on Facebook or Instagram, and the drive is to uncover images of their ex happy with someone new, and they won't stop until they find the kind of exquisitely torturous image 
that concretizes or exemplifies the abandonment that they're feeling. Individuals who feel rejected by one person will isolate and push away all the people in their life who do care and are available and reach out to them, and they'll just stay fixated on the one person who's rejected them. During the pandemic, people who were anxious about the COVID epidemic, instead of connecting or sharing about it or processing it, instead would spend hours doom-scrolling sensationalist news sources that social media looking for the worst news possible to feel even more anxious. Some people who are feeling lonely and disconnected will spend hours on social media scrolling for images of their friends gathering together happy and social. After career setbacks, that are entirely beyond our control, individuals with self-inflicted suffering will spend days on end lacerating themselves with self-belittling critiques and self-loathing, even though... And it's well known that gambling addicts gamble very often not to win or for the excitement, but to re-experience the feeling of losing everything. So those are a bunch of examples of what self-inflicted suffering looks like. And there's many other examples. It's actually a state that's so universal that there's words for it in different languages. To give some examples of words in romantic languages, like, for example, in Spanish, doloroso encanto, is the alluring quality that's found in the midst of one's suffering. In Portuguese, saudade is the yearning for melancholic states. And in French, juive douleur, I have no idea if I pronounced that correctly. It, it seems like it would be pronounced that way. Juive douleur is the enjoyment of emotional pain. The state of when we're feeling down, doing something that makes us feel even worse is not unknown. Now, today we call the unconscious drive to recreate previous painful, even traumatic experiences from childhood repetition compulsion. And that was a insight by Freud, who noted in his patients' patterns of behavior that seemed solely to bring about the circumstances where painful events would invariably recur. So the child of a distant and often unavailable partner will become, as an adult, fixated by relationships that with emotionally distant partners. So they'll re-experience the abandonment um, or to the degree that an infant found their caregivers scary or overly scolding as an adult life, they very often will gravitate towards abusive relationships. So Freud noted that this compulsion to uh, a compulsion to recreate 
previous suffering can be even more influential than the drive to experience pleasure in that it's a desire to return to an earlier, simpler stage of life where the outcomes were known. And we'll talk more about that. Um, The Buddha, in his teaching on dealing with um, suffering, dukkha, that is, uh, it's brought about by one's actions, had a teaching called Yonisa Manasikara, And that's the ability to look at one's suffering or one's emotional states through a lens that uncovers uh, three different and very distinct factors that helps us address suffering. So there's three lenses the Buddha suggests looking at one's suffering through. The first is what he called asada, and that's what are the underlying allures behind a behavior that leads to suffering? What do we unconsciously get from it? So that's probably one of the most important things to understand is that all repetitive behaviors that even if they lead to bad outcomes, there's something we're getting from it. And the more we understand, the more we can begin to address. Uh, The second, he said, is know what the real drawbacks or adinava of these behaviors are. And with self-inflicted suffering, a lot of the drawbacks are pretty obvious that makes us feel terrible, but there's others that we'll discover. And the third is how do we escape this predilection? And the escape in Buddhism is nisarana. So the Buddha said to address any kind of compulsion or any kind of repetition compulsion or any kind of behavior that leads to suffering we have to understand why we do it what the drawbacks are and how to address it or escape it so for freud the allure of repeating behaviors that have bad outcomes or uh, painful outcomes was an attempt to master the situation to master uh, a situation or experience during which in childhood we had no sense of control. We felt utterly helpless. And so in returning to a a familiar situation in adult life, we bring to it a sense of control, even a sense that this time we can change the outcome. So, for example, the child who grew up with uh, emotionally engulfing caregivers who felt overwhelmed and like their parents were their parents were helicopter parenting, uh, that child will very often wind up with emotionally engulfing partners because unconsciously they're yearning now to control the situation in childhood during which they had no sense of control. They felt they felt utterly helpless. And there's even a deeper hope that they can change the outcome. This time they can 
change the person from being engulfing to uh, meeting their needs. So that's Freud's insight as to why people engage in repetitive, unhealthy, uh, or misery-inducing behaviors. But there's other allures. Uh, for example, suffering like victimhood provides us with an excuse to give up. We can give up being vulnerable. We can give up trying to connect with others. We can retreat into a warm bath of self abandonment continually uh it feels easier and on the other hand continually trying to connect with others or meet a romantic partner is scary and difficult so dwelling on one's ex is a way to create a feeling of hopelessness i'll never find love i missed my opportunity and so it justifies giving up some people might argue that because the brain has inherent negativity bias, that through the course of evolution, our ancestors survived in or lived in dangerous settings. Those who dwelled on negative catastrophizing threats like predators or food sources drying up or rival clans invading would be more cautious, and those individuals would have lived on to pass on their genes to following generations and might well have achieved greater tribal status. So for some of us, catastrophizing and dwelling on the negative uh, can appear to be more realistic than being optimistic or grateful or happy even. Certainly, self-inflicted suffering provides a distraction from the big, overwhelming, difficult issues that we avoid in life because they're just too much for us to address. When we have big, unresolved issues that create a sense of looming dread or helplessness, we might seek to resolve by returning to familiar known pains. So I'll give you some examples. People who experience ongoing financial stress or they're in a career that's very vulnerable or people who are experiencing fracturing relationships with their romantic partner or with a family member these individuals can uh, try to distract themselves from these big issues by fixating on a petty disappointment or being overcharged or getting a traffic ticket or some minor disagreement with a minor figure in their life. So the self-inflicted suffering is a way to deflect attention from the bigger issue. I've certainly known people who are facing real career um, uh, dissatisfaction. But rather than dealing with that, uh, constantly obsess about some emotionally unavailable person that they fixate on be as a way to distract themselves from this big issue that they don't want to face. 
those with a continuing lack of community or intimate friendships as well can dwell on previous romantic partners. People with suppressed guilt over past actions that they've never processed or losses that they haven't processed can spend hours isolating, catastrophizing about completely unrelated issues. So you might ask, why in the world would we seek out a familiar pain to distract ourselves from some big unsettled issue? Well, there's a known clinically found um, and, and replicated human drive known as negative time preferential. And the way that uh, happens in laboratory settings is if you tell someone at some point in the next three minutes, they're going to get a shock. Uh, they can wait or they can get an even worse shock now. Virtually everybody says, give me the worst shock now, because nobody wants to wait around for the hammer to fall, for the shoe to drop, for the bad thing to happen. We want to get it over with now. So the greatest, a, a great allure of self-inflicted suffering is that when there's a big issue, um, uh, that we haven't dealt with, it can provide a sense that we're experiencing the suffering right now. And that, you know, it creates a sense that, uh, in doing so, we're kind of, uh, paying our sacrifice <laughs> and that maybe these big issues will go away. But perhaps the greatest allure of self-inflicted suffering is not that it distracts from big unresolved issues in life, but is that it provides a way to manage unbearable internal emotional states. So what does this mean? Children learn how to process and regulate their emotional ups and downs by connecting with their parents or caregivers and when the parents and caregivers are available and pay attention and soothe their distress, they develop the skills to integrate those emotions and know that those emotions are tolerable and they know how to connect with others to regulate their emotions. Sometimes caregivers struggle to accept and regulate specific emotions in their children. So, uh, some parents can't deal with the fact that their children are disappointed. Uh, and when their children express disappointment, they uh, will guilt them for feeling that way. Or some parents will struggle with uh, accepting that their ch their children are sad or lonely or angry. And over time, these specific emotions become too painful to acknowledge and verbally express. They wind up suppressed and they aren't integrated into the individual self-structure. By the time that child becomes an adult, when they feel those specific emotions, say disappointment, when they experience the emotions that their parents couldn't acknowledge or regulate, 
Rather than connect with others, they'll seek out an addictive substance or behavior to get to numb that specific emotion. So many people who are alcoholic drink to numb uh, the anxiety of rejection or numb feelings of loneliness because the, or numb their anger because those were emotions that their parents couldn't handle, couldn't regulate. But suppose... Caregivers struggled not with a few negative emotions, but almost the entirety of the child's negative emotions. Or suppose a caregiver suddenly disappeared and was no longer available. Um, to the child, these experiences feels like the very nucleus of their identity or personality is toxic and unlovable. And that's a state known as core shame. It's not a, a single emotion that we can't deal with, like our anger. It's a global sense that there's something about me that other people, if they got to know me, if they saw the real me, they'd be appalled. And those with core shame who experience any interpersonal rift or setback in adult life, they'll experience a surge of feelings of self-disgust or emptiness or just absolute hollowness that's associated with shame. So we seek these familiar pains uh, of, you know, fixating on looking for, at social media for the feeling lonely or we fixate on romantic partnerships that failed or we fixate on uh catastrophes that are entirely imagined or we we doom scroll sensationalist news or we uh do self sabotaging behaviors as a way to externalize and manage these gut feelings of unworthiness because even though the self-sabotaging behaviors are unpleasant. They're nowhere near as unpleasant as core shame. So sitting around dwelling on or fixating about something unpleasant, even though it's not anyone's idea of a fun time, it still provides a way out. And there's lots of studies on this. Uh, and one study, an examination of the relationship between shame and self-suffering by Kate Sheehy and other psychologists at the University of Liverpool with a meta, large meta-analysis showed uh, how uh, uh, shame is a catalyst for all different kinds of self-harm and self-inflicted pain. Paul Bloom, who's the professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, who's written a lot of books on self-inflicted emotional pain, notes that these behaviors provide an escape from one's core sense of self. So even they're unpleasant, but they're not as unpleasant as feeling a gut sense of unworthiness. So the drawbacks of self-inflicted pain are pretty obvious in that they're behaviors that cause distressing feelings. Um, but 
What's even worse about them that we don't often see is that while we're engaging in self-inflicted suffering, the underlying issues, the core shame, the big unresolved, you know, events in our life we're not dealing with, um, remain entirely unaddressed and they worsen over time and the shame worsens and therefore the length and the duration of the self-inflicted suffering gets worse and then the isolation and uh, uh, disconnection from others grows worse. So what are the ways to escape or what the Buddha called Nisarana? Um, there's some good evidence that depth therapies that lay bare the underlying patterns of our present behaviors, their roots in childhood uh, attachment disturbances can produce a, a positive degree of self-awareness that can lead to a greater degree of empathy for oneself and can also create a kind of awareness of when people are engaging in these uh these self-inflicted uh, suffering behaviors. And over time, our frontal lobes can begin to inhibit some of those behaviors. There's certainly a lot of evidence that being a part of a group or fellowship provides a space where we can um, share about these uh, behaviors without any sense of shame or additional guilt. And in sharing about these behaviors, we experience support, we feel less alone and overwhelmed. And in hearing that other people's experience the same or go through the same patterns, we feel less pathological. And when we start feeling the urge, we can call up someone or talk to someone and alleviate the stress. Mindfulness practice, noting our internal cues don't match up with the situations we're in, you know, noting what you're, we're feeling entirely internally and how it doesn't match what's going on in our world around us. Uh, and a growing sense of, of unease, anxiety, shame, loneliness. If we note the feelings before they turn into behaviors, as the Buddha noted, we can interrupt the process. The Buddha said catching repetitive behaviors when they're just incipient feeling states in the body is the uh, great um, weak link in the chain of suffering and finally, and this is what we're going to do partially in the meditation, building up one's sense of self in terms of the feelings we experience when we think of ourself uh, can actually begin to alleviate core shame. And in alleviating core shame, we begin to alleviate the self-inflicted suffering that's meant, that develops as a way to manage Core shame. There was a great psychologist. Um, I really enjoy learning. I've been enjoying uh, reading some of his work. Joseph Sandler at the Hampstead Clinic, very famous psych uh, psychoanalyst from the 
whose work ranged from the 1960s through the 1990s. And he noted that there's a developmental milestone in secure children when they think of themselves or they see themselves in a mirror, they conjure up a backdrop of positive feelings in their body. They start to feel confident. Their bodies relax and open up and feel warm and strong. But when we go through enough emotion, uh, attachment disturbances in childhood, we fail to link a positive affect with our sense of self. We feel nothing when we hear our name, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, when uh, our very sense of identity conjures up no feelings of positivity, joy, confidence, strength, uh, worthiness. So in creating those feelings and associating them with our sense of self, um, we begin to address this deficit. And in Buddhism, practices like sila and kaganusati are specifically uh, practices that developed a positive sense of self-regard. So in these practices, we might visualize uh, someone uh, real or imagined that we've helped or want to help or a situation in life where we feel a sense of uh, skill, capability, value. We locate the feelings in our bodies that feel good about these specific endeavors, and then we extend enhance and extend the physical sensations to the point they become almost all-encompassing. And then we change the image in our mind to our self-representation, an image of ourself. And so we're associating our self-representation with a positive feeling in our body. And that's really what addresses core shame. So... I'm going to now lead a meditation and uh, find a really comfortable seated position. I hope that something in tonight's talk was of value to you. And uh, so when you're ready, You can also be off screen, by the way. Whenever you're ready, close your eyes. Make it a point to let go of any thoughts about tonight's talk or any thoughts about events that happened before. this uh, Dharma Punk's virtual gathering. And we'll endeavor to do that by bringing our attention to any sensations that are occurring within our body. 
So they could be sensations of breathing or contact with a chair or couch or lying on a floor or bed or whatever. And it also can be just being aware of sensations that are actually occurring and actually occurring right now. So sounds around you, any feelings of uh, aromas happening right now, any breeze that you might be experiencing. The sensations of clothes draped on your body. If none of these sensations, your body sensations or present time external sensations are enough to ground you in the present, you can also repeat a phrase, may all beings be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. Or hold in mind an image conjuring an image of a place in the world where you feel safe, an image that doesn't evolve or change, just a static image. If you want to use the breath, the most simplest practice to develop a relaxed state of Concentration and ease is to think the number one while you breathe in, and then as you breathe out, think the number two. The next in-breath, think three, and as you breathe out, think four. With the following in-breath, think five, but then start counting down. So on the out-breath, you think four. As you breathe in, you think three, but on the out-breath, you think two. And when you reach one again, you start counting back up. So we're counting from one to five and back down, with odd numbers always on the in-breath. Every time... You find yourself losing count, don't worry about it, or your mind drifts away. Just take a moment, relax, bring your attention back, and just start counting over. Or use any other set of present time sensations and just bring your awareness back. Meditation is not about doing it perfectly or experiencing a meditation where your mind never drifts away. It's about learning to become aware enough that we note when those events happen and that we can return without any sense of making a mistake or doing something wrong.
And when we do this over time, we develop wired neural circuits that literally allow us to disconnect from intrusive, obsessive thoughts. So for a little while, we're going to sit here in silence and just use whatever meditation technique feels right for you.
So what I'd like to invite you to do is our visualization practice is to bring to mind any activity or person or endeavor that we associate with positive feelings. Sometimes it's helpful in this practice to visualize something you do that exemplifies your highest sense of self. It could be as simple as picking up to connect, the phone to connect with someone who needs support or being available, listening when somebody reaches out to you. Or it could be some creative skill or craft that you've developed. You could just be connecting with specific people. It could be the fact that you're meditating right now, that you're trying to develop a spiritual component in your life. You'll know you have the right image when it conjures up some kind of backdrop of well-being, anything associated with pride or with accomplishment or with even the slightest degree of confidence or uh, self-care. To see if you can find the right image that creates a internally pleasant state. And whenever you find any positive sensation or somatic state in your body, even the smallest area, and for example, the belly or the palms of your hands or any other behind the eyes or any other region, try to extend and expand the pleasant physical sensations through your body. So if any image or reflection or contemplation that you 
practice with brings about any state of physical ease, pay attention to that ease and try with each in-breath to spread it. Or you can try with each exhalation to spread it. But just see if you can relax the body and spread this sense of strength or well-being or um, health or goodness throughout your body, kind of like you're kneading water into dough. You're just spreading, suffusing the body with pleasant sensations. And finally, see if you can associate this feeling of ease in your body whenever you experience it. Whenever you, in the future or now, experience any state of ease, comfort, strength, settledness, calmness. While you're in that state, conjure up an image of yourself, an image of yourself today or an image of yourself as a child. And to see if you can link the your name, your image, with these feelings of calmness and confidence and capability, just linking the two.
And so when you're ready, take your time and slowly begin to bring your awareness back to your present surroundings. (laughs) 